This is Weekly Woman by Jubilance for PMS. Okay, so we're talking all about periods of history and actual periods in history. We're chatting all things menstruation and how contraception came about, but also with Heather Milstead about her play that touches on these topics. This wonderful actress and writer is joining us who just presented her play at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And if you like our podcast, please, please, please tell your friends and review us on Apple Podcast. It's so helpful. And on to the show. Okay, so what is the history of contraception? The oral contraceptive pill, otherwise known as the pill, was so influential enough to earn the title of the pill. The pill allowed women to be free in new ways, to be both sexually liberated and to regulate when they wanted to be pregnant, allowing them to start new career paths, try all different kinds of things, and go forth with autonomy. The pill is called one of the most significant medical advances in the last century. The pill was developed in the United States in the 1950s by Dr. John Rock and Gregory Pincus, but there were other ideas before this revolutionary medical achievement. In ancient Egypt and Crete around 3000 BCE, there were early developments of condoms that they would make from animal or fish intestines or linen sheaths. One of the earliest primary and secondary sources say that the first person to use a condom was King Minos of Crete. His wife, Pacify, famous for birthing the Minotaur, was said to use a goat's bladder placed in her because King Minos's semen was rumored to contain scorpions and serpents that killed his mistresses. What? That's crazy! <laughs> in ancient Egypt, the men would wear linen sheaths and the goal was less about preventing pregnancy but to stop tropical diseases. The men would also wear different colored linens based on their social status in the hierarchical society. So they were wearing condoms that were different colors that would show like their hierarchy in the social strata, which I think is crazy and weird. Like, who's seen all of these? And then around 1850 BCE, the Egyptians developed some of the first spermicides by adding fermented dough and crocodile excrement. Ugh! thank God we live now. The Romans also created their own kind of condoms. Like the Egyptians, it wasn't about preventing pregnancy, but rather their interest in public health and protection against venereal diseases like syphilis. Condoms were made out of linen, as well as the intestines and bladders of goats. During the Renaissance, scientists started to better understand human anatomy based on dissections, and they also still used linen and goat intestines for creating a sort of condom. Gabriele Fallopio, who was an Italian biologist, first described the fallopian tube, and he talked about how a sheath of linen could be used by securing a ribbon around it and then lubricated with spit. He actually conducted experiments on 1,100 men who used the linen condom, and it helped all of the men avoid syphilis. So they were using a condom or something to prevent at least STDs and STIs. In England, using the animal intestines for condoms became common practice because one of the most common causes of death of English soldiers during the English Civil War was syphilis. Condoms of animal intestines were thus sent to the army to reduce transmission while they slept with prostitutes. Can you believe this? 
They had to send the troops condoms of animal intestines so they wouldn't get syphilis, which was the leading cause of death, not the war that they were fighting. And King Charles II had a number of illegitimate children. And so to stop having all these bastard children, his doctor, Colonel Condom, made him an early sheath out of sheep intestine. And so the word condom comes from the name of this doctor. In the 1700s, the use of the condom became widespread. Whorehouses would sell them before escapades with the prostitutes. The linen sheath stopped being sold because the animal intestines were more comfortable, but they were still not as available to the lower classes due to the lack of education of STDs and the high prices. I mean, I imagine it was a high price to get like an animal's intestine. What the? Like, this is crazy. It wasn't until 1855 when the first rubber condom was created. It was actually made by a man named Charles Nelson Goodyear. He had experimented with making rubber for a long time, and finally, in an accident in his laboratory, he was finally able to stabilize the substance. He created the first condom out of rubber. It was two millimeters thick with a seam down the middle. The ones we use now are about 0.06 millimeters thick. So a big difference in what is going into a person. And um, these rubber condoms were reusable. So it was a completely new sort of thing. They could be washed out and then greased with lubricant like Vaseline. And then they'd be stored in a wooden box until the next sexual activity. The playwright George Bernard Shaw called the condom the greatest invention of the century. You might also recognize the name Goodyear from the famous tire company. They named the company after this man who invented rubber. And dare I say rubbers? (laughs) Then in 1873, the Comstock Act, an anti-obscenity law, prevented both the sale of contraceptives and all sharing of information on preventing pregnancy until 1936. Hmm, does that sound familiar? It made illegal the U.S. Post Service to mail any kind of contraceptive or sex toy. Not only did they pass this act, but in 1907, the U.S. instituted public policies that gave the government the right to sterilize anyone considered insane, dependent, or deceased. These laws were first enacted in Indiana, and then they were put in place by 30 other states by 1929, and it disproportionately affected Native American and Black women, which was completely horrifying and, of course, not not okay. Um, that they were doing this. So in 1914, the public health nurse Margaret Sanger decided to do something about this. She coined the term birth control and said that enforced motherhood is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. She fought to make contraceptives legal and available to women in the U.S., She started her first birth control clinic, the first in the U.S. in 1916 in Brownsville, Brooklyn. In 1917, the Court of New York sentenced Sanger to jail for 30 days. When she was released, she reopened her clinic and she was constantly back and forth between jail and reopening her her practice. In 1918, in the People v. Sanger, the New York State Court of Appeals reversed the criminal charges against Sanger and declared that the state's limitations on giving out birth control were unconstitutional because they stepped upon women's rights. In the same year, black women at the Women's Political Association of Harlem held their first public lecture on contraception. 
At the same time, in Europe, World War I was raging on and saw the deployment of weapons as well as condoms to the German army. The American and British armies did not get condoms in their packages of munitions, and thus it was found that there were a huge amount of soldiers with gonorrhea and syphilis. Meanwhile, on the German side, an inventor named Julius Fromm created a thinner condom with no visible lines called Fromm's Act. Margaret Sanger founded the American Birth Control League in 1921, which slowly morphed into the first Planned Parenthood. And it wasn't until 1923 that Sanger could open a clinic legally. And at this point, she agreed to give out birth control for medical reasons. In the 1920s, there was an advent of latex, which is what we still use in condoms today. In 1936, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled in U.S. versus one package that the Comstock laws violated the Constitution so birth control and sex toys could finally go through the mail. So then, by 1939, there were about 400 birth control clinics all over the country, and the Birth Control Federation of America changed its name to Planned Parenthood. In the 1950s, based on the funding of philanthropist Catherine Dexter McCormick, John Rock, a gynecologist at Harvard Medical School, and Gregory Pincus, a biochemist at Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology, started to work on the pill, which used progesterone and estrogen to push back the ovulation in menstruators. It was finally approved by the FDA in 1960 and became known as the pill. With the pill, women were able to have sex before marriage. They could work without fearing pregnancy. And the sexual revolution occurred. By 1965, 6.5 million American women were taking the pill daily. And now, 100 million menstruators take the pill every day. We've come a long way with contraceptives. There are now so many more options than there ever were before. And it's all thanks to the history that slowly, slowly piled up. And thank goodness we live now. Can you imagine? I I cannot. Um, We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. First, we have to give it up for our sponsor, Jubilance for PMS, the only supplement on the market to help relieve your emotional PMS symptoms. This supplement is produced by a woman-run company and is the only clinically tried supplement on the market for the emotional side of PMS. Just think if you could stop all the stressing and those anxieties that accompany PMS. It's totally possible with a supplement you take once a day. Learn more if Jubilance is right for you at jubilance.com. Hi, Heather. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I have Heather Milstead, everyone. Um, and so where are you calling in from? Um, I'm calling in from a place called Harpenden, which is a tiny little town in Hertfordshire, kind of near Newton Airport Way. So I'm just back from Edinburgh. Oh, okay. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, what's your favorite part about Hertfordshire? Um, I like the countryside probably. It's there's a lot of like green spaces that you can go for walks and bike rides and like random fields just hiding behind houses, which is quite nice. Oh wow, that's exciting. The <laughs> country girl at heart. So. Oh wow. Yeah, that's great to be in Edinburgh then. There's like so much um oh, nature there. Yeah. 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 I think it's probably one of my favorite places like ever. <laughs> yeah. I would move there in a heartbeat. It is gorgeous. 
yeah me too <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so you were just performing at the edinburgh fringe can you talk a little bit about what that is for our american viewer viewers and listeners who have no idea absolutely um so it's like this massive arts festival that happens every year up in edinburgh i think it started sort of post like after the world wars when everyone needed a bit of cheering up as in sort of like a response to more like mainstream or sort of like higher like more difficult to access ways of performing I, it's uh, involves I mean I'm not a historian on this, I don't know why I'm talking about this uh, not the question anyway it's this massive arts festival in Edinburgh it happens every August um for like the whole month you've got comedy you've got dance you've got theatre you've got cabaret musicals things that don't fit into any of those categories um which is great because so many different artists come together from all over the world and there's sort of lots of different you apply to the different venues and the venues just pop up in spaces that aren't normally theatre spaces so you might have churches or university buildings or like random cellars or like archways it's it's really cool I love it it's got a really brilliant atmosphere and energy to it which is really cool wow that's amazing and I think here in America everyone like aspires to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with a show just once um it's like the inspiration that everyone has it's like the art festival like of English-speaking countries it is like considered amazing so that is so cool that you performed there both before the pandemic and like going to be in 2020 and then now and now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the stuff of dreams that's really cool <laughs> yes so um my sister actually saw um heather's performance in uh at the edinburgh fringe this year and she called me and said oh my god you have to talk to her and so you had a show called period dramas and your tagline was what if period dramas really were about periods we warn you it gets bloody can you talk a little bit about what this show was yeah, definitely. Um, so period dramas is sort of a cabaret comedy piece all about the history of menstruation. So we went back from ancient Egypt and came all the way up to today and talked about periods and different periods of history. Um, yeah, it was a little bit chaotic, a little bit crazy. Um, and we had a different cabaret act for each period of history. Um, so there was like a tap dance for the 1900s up to today and then a magic act for medieval Europe and stuff like that. So yeah. Wow. How did you come up with like the cabaret acts that went with the different periods of history? This is a great question and it's a slightly random answer. Um, I think, so the show actually, there's one act in it, I do about Elizabeth I and this rumor that she was like, actually died when she was 10 and was replaced by this boy and that's why she never got married. And But there was, it, it was a rumor people believed at the time and a lot wow. of it centered on like, yeah, and people like spied on her bed sheets and were like, is she bleeding? Is she, like, it was really like, bizarre and I, just found it, I know so I find it so crazy so I made this sort of like gender bending drag act about it um which sort of ended with her period starting and um, that act has changed hugely um since I first made it but it's still in the show and then the rest of it kind of built from that so that was probably the first sort of cabaret-esque um hint but I will say um, started getting into cabaret drag around the time I started making the show and it just felt like a I don't know cabaret is quite like a subversive art form when you get to do a lot with it and it's it's about pushing those boundaries and I mean talking about periods shouldn't be a boundary that needs to still be pushed but unfortunately it seems to be one um, and then like I just did all the research and from that 
that I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. I kept looking at that and I was like, oh, what can I actually work on with this? And so like in the Victorian era, it's all about sort of people's morality and it's very uptight. And I thought, oh, it'd be funny if I do like a tongue-in-cheek striptease because that like plays on <laughs> the idea of uh, the sort of morality of the time. So I tried to link each act. Like each act kind of grew out of the history itself in a way. Wow, that's so fascinating. And and crazy that it is so subversive right now. And um, menstruation isn't typically shown in the theater or on film, even though it's like something that half of the population experiences at some point during their lifetime. Um, What inspired you to create this like this drama about like this taboo subject? Was it this Elizabeth the first um, uh, uh, piece that you had started first on? Um, I think I'd kind of always kind of weirdly been quite interested in it. I think I I have really bad periods, like they're just so bad. And I started when I was nine. So uh, (gasps) like before I'd started watching period dramas and I thought period dramas were gonna be about periods and I was so disappointed that they were. I know it's quite tragic really but um, I was I was so upset so I'd always had this like I I don't know I didn't really get why we weren't supposed to talk about them or like why we couldn't talk about them I so I always had that kind of part of me um and and then I went off to do history at uni before I went to drama school um and there was like nothing about the history of registration I was just so frustrated by it I was like right I want to do some research I want to find out some stuff because everyone like you read the sort of the first articles were like oh but nutrition was bad so people bled less I'm like that's not that's just not true (laughs) and not true (laughs) it's just like that's not that's not right um so I like I kind of wanted to start doing that research when I was at uni and started digging into it a bit but never really um did anything with it until sort of after drama school um but I think it's been something always playing in the back of my mind which is perhaps a bit weird but um it was something I always wanted to know more about because I was like it's so hard to deal with it now how much of it like how do people deal with it then and I was just really interested in it um, yeah. that's a history nerd um <laughs> no that's so cool that's so interesting so you were able to use like your history background to put together this show which is so interesting and yeah. shouldn't be taboo no I know it's uh, absolutely ridiculous so it's still and when I was flyering like in Edinburgh oh my gosh the conversations that like some people were just like like some people turned around and was like you've got a man with me and I was like yeah and we can talk about parents what <laughs> um like people were some people were wonderful and some people just weren't ready to like talk about it which uh, perhaps I'm naive because I'm the one that's written the show but it, more more so than I expected um but wow that interesting. that's yeah. so interesting here in like 2022 and it's still something that is like yeah. oh um especially because so let's talk about your poster your poster is you with a tampon in your nose like the classic like nosebleed thing and then you have um a crown made out of tampons can you talk a little bit about like putting that together <laughs> um so the crown actually came first I I think because the idea of a period drama is it was quite sort of initially quite regal and it does end up being a history of there are quite a few monarchs that feature in it which is something that I wanted to have more of a general experience of everyday people but unfortunately there sometimes is more there are more resources available for for like monarchs and stuff and um, mm-hmm. I, I want to do more research uh, going forward on that anyway sorry sidetrack <laughs> the crowd so I guess there was this sort of um 
regal part to it and because it started with Elizabeth I and I was like oh it'd be fun if we had a crown and then I was just sort of in an R&D like research and development phase with my director at the time and we were like oh let's make a crown of tampons and we literally whacked out this red crown went to the shop and were like okay what do we want to do and just built the crown of tampons um and that sort of became a like centerpiece of the show at the end and the tampon up the nose actually came later when we were playing with different um ideas for photos we initially kind of wanted to do something like on the toilet um but that shot just ended up being the one that when we looked back at all of them that was sort of a last minute end of the day of the photo shoot let's shove a tampon up the nose put the crown on see what happens and oh. when we looked back at them we were like no that's that's the one that sort of is gets the the energy of the show I think yeah and I think it I think it's kind of interesting too because you're walking around Edinburgh I was there um right before the fringe and like I saw this poster and it was like oh my god Gretchen my sister you have to go to this and tell me all about it um but but I imagine like handing up that flyer like you were saying it was um it could yeah. be quite subversive to just to give people the the flyer and talk about like what the show was yeah I I think um it, the image is quite uh well it's clear that the show is going to be about appearance and not not hold back from sort of maybe the more gory details as it were but um but I have to say when I was wearing this crown whilst flying a lot of people didn't realize it was a tampon crown and I was like is it a candle is it a cake and I was like Wait, no <laughs> no it's, it's tampons <laughs> which was quite funny but but yeah I think the flyer itself was um people knew whether they wanted a cup or not yeah. straight away from looking at it um, which was interesting but yeah That's so interesting wait so so were the people who didn't know what the tampon crown was were they more like non-menstruators and um, not necessarily I think huh. some people just hadn't initially thought that it was going to be like looked that. at it well so enough. then I think okay so yeah and, and took a while but then that was quite nice in a way because it then started a conversation and and sometimes non-menstruators as well um had there were some police officers up there which I had a really lovely chat with when they finally worked out what it was <laughs> but, oh wow that's so interesting I had a um professor at drama school actually I'm a theater director in New York on my like mm -hmm. on the other side of things. Um, but I brought in a tampon one time and he was like a lovely gay man. And he was like so fascinated by me opening the little package, having the little applicator. He had no idea what that was. And then like how you push it up. Um, but like fascinating that so many people don't know what this like yeah. essential item is that like I use once a month <laughs> exactly it's uh, well one time my um when my brother was quite young he borrowed my mom's bag on a school trip and he'd like offered them out thinking they were sweets oh um, bless him. um this was a long long time ago now but um but it is because why I mean sex education has been quite uh, lacking I think mm -hmm. um, but it was quite interesting that after the show, some of my non-menstruating friends had been and they were like, oh, but what's what's a cup and what's a and different things that I talked about in the show. And, and it was really nice that they then felt able to ask that, but they'd never seen them or, or, or could get their head around how everything worked. And it's. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that great. Really that's kind of um interesting and I'm curious like what 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 did you leave your audience with what was your goal with that to like start the conversation to get non-menstruators in or was it mostly to like bring in the menstrual crowd 
That's a really great question. I think it was a bit of both, um, which was, again, quite interesting because it, it wasn't a, I, I think our main audience probably was people that menstruated. There's a lot of, um, well, I overshare a lot of my embarrassing stories alongside the history and it's about trying to embrace those messy parts of us and sort of work past any shame that we might feel. Um, and because we don't need, like, that's a societal problem. That's not on us. Like, that's not on us. Um, but at the same time, it was really important to me that it wasn't just people that menstruate that came. Because mm. that's the whole point. It's, it needs to be for everyone. And it, I very much wanted it to be everyone's included. I didn't want it to be a sort of anti those that don't menstruate kind mm -hmm. of show as well. Because that will just sort of make that gap even wider. And I really yeah. wanted it to be like come on in everyone let's have this chat it is a bit embarrassing at times it is a bit messy but let's embrace that and and move forwards and, and start these conversations and it was really like it meant so much when a couple of people afterwards did say oh I feel like I can talk about this now or mm. um one of my friends who menstruates came with a colleague that doesn't and they had this massive conversation after the show about it and I was like yes that's exactly what I want I yeah I think I'm quite lucky that the people in my life have been quite willing to talk about it, but there's mm. those that really haven't been, and that's it's horrible. It's it's such a huge part of our lives, and it's I don't know. I'm heavy and I'm pain, painful, and to not be able to talk about, to even just not be able to be like, oh, my tummy hurts. Acknowledge today. it, yeah. Right, it's um, it's utterly bizarre. That that's how yeah, that, that's so strange, and the fact that like sometimes people don't even talk to their girlfriends about it or other yeah. menstruators. I don't even want to say girlfriends, but, um, yeah. and that's, that's so strange that this like human experience isn't talked about. So thank you for opening that conversation. <laughs> oh, hopefully it'll help a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for the show? Are you going to continue to develop it? Is it, is it moving forward? What are you doing with it? What do I do? It's a great question. I'm having some meetings this week with my director and the team to sort of get our heads straight post Edinburgh. But I think what we'd really like to do is make a schools tour out of it. Um, oh. As it stands, it's a, a 14 plus ish show. There's, there's rude bits in there, but um, we'd like to develop it into uh, a, something that we could take around to schools. Um, I'd quite like to focus on sort of more community level theatre and maybe do, mm. like, it'd be quite nice if we could do. A workshop in a, a bunch of schools in an area and then maybe the adult version of the show in the local hall and, and sort of awesome. scale it uh, for those many I don't yeah I think because yeah. I think like people of all different ages need to see this show and like yeah. understand like what is menstruation and also like the cool funny history and bloody like embarrassing parts which are yeah which and, and like I think every month to me <laughs> exactly and I think that like well horrible history is what I loved and, and that I think kids are quite interested in the perhaps glorious side of things um, at times but but also I started when I was nine and I didn't know what it was and a lot of people um, don't know what's happening when it starts and I think mm -hmm. that so sometimes we veer away from having those conversations with younger people because we're worried that we might scare them but actually it's almost worse to not have had those conversations um, mm -hmm. but yeah so it needs development for that but hopefully that's the next step fingers crossed that's what I do amazing break a leg thank you <laughs> <laughs> yes and how can we see your work if we're not based in the UK is is it possible at all um, so I'm working on getting a film version. We did film it up in Edinburgh um, with 
varying uh, quality. So I'm, I'm finishing going through that this week, but we're working on getting a venue in London that we can get a good quality sort of filmed version of it, um, which I'm not quite sure where it's going to go yet, but there will be a filmed version available to, to view. Um, it's we've got to get a few audience members in because there's audience interaction and stuff in the show. Spoiler. Um, so we're working on getting that sorted and getting a really sort of good quality filmed version. Um, and then that will go into the ether somewhere. Um, Amazing. But yeah, so it will be possible to see if you're not in the UK. Um, yeah, it's exciting. That's so cool. And something that we always ask on this podcast is uh, what is your definition of womanhood? Oh, what is my definition of womanhood? That is such a tricky question. Yeah. Um, I think it changes like second to second. So it's like whatever yeah. you're feeling at this particular moment this morning. I think um, I, my instinct is to say like community of sort of closeness and talking about uh, things that maybe I don't, I don't know. I have a great sort of group of friends that we, we could talk about everything with and like literally everything that I wouldn't that there's like a really nice community of sort of sharing our experiences there um but I, I, womanhood is such a broad term gosh I yeah I think I think the shared experience of, of, of a community at the moment of things that we may have experienced from others but also just within ourselves if that makes any sense yeah it's like quite a, it does it does yeah I just threw that at you <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, oh, I'm definitely gonna go and think about that more though that's a really interesting question. Mm. Yeah. And Heather, what is next for you? What's next for me? This is a, a great question. Um, I am running some workshops at the moment. So I'm starting some new workshops tomorrow with older adults and creative writing and stuff. And then I've got a few projects lined up in November. I'm doing a school's tour and a short film and stuff, which is really exciting. Um, and then I think I'm hoping to sort of plan the next steps in September for, for period dramas um, I'd love to well I want to turn at the school tour and I'd love to try and make sort of a, a young adult book um, about it as well I don't know cool. I'm not an author so I don't know why I've decided that that's the next step but I, I want to there's so much research that didn't get to go on the show um, that I really want to try and get down in some capacity whether that ends up being a, sort of a blog site or a podcast or a book I'm not quite sure yet but I'd like to get some of that research out into the world that um that didn't make it into the show so yeah that's awesome there's so much history that we don't know about especially in terms of like women um yeah. and it just isn't talked about I mean like periods aren't talked about now but like what did they do like they just like bled out in the field like come on <laughs> there's yeah. so much and more there there is actually stuff like if you did I mean some periods of history I found really difficult to research there really was uh, I found it really hard to find stuff but then like in ancient Egypt there's loads they like that stuff was so well documented and maybe it's not this is a document on periods but in documents on sort of uh, pregnancy and mm. other kinds of health um there's loads there's like so much on what they used for contraception or how to bring a period on if it was let, like there's wow. I found that fascinating but actually um that some of the further away periods have way more than you might expect. And they had like great ideas that you could use menstrual blood for purifying things. Like there was some really uh, like celebratory aspects of it. So it's, wow. it's really interesting how it's sort of changed over time. 
That's so fascinating. Yeah, I would read your book. I, I'm ready for it now. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Heather, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're so welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. Thanks for listening to Weekly Woman by Jubilance for PMS. If you like the podcast, please review us on iTunes. It really does help. And if you want to take advantage of our special offer to help your PMS turn from stressful to nonchalant, use the promo code WEEKLYWOMAN with no space in between the two words at jubilance.com. Again, the promo code is WEEKLYWOMAN. Thanks for listening and see you next time.